You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon. Permacrisis, meaning an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events, was recently chosen as the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year. It pipped other contenders like lawfare, sports washing, quiet leaving and party gate to the post. And it's a word to describe the feeling of living through a period of war, inflation and political instability. Today, we're here to talk about the latter, and I am thrilled to have here with me Sir Jonathan Jones to talk about public law and the constitution under a Johnson Truss Sunak government, building on a lecture he recently gave at Middle Temple. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. What prompted you to come up with this lecture? I didn't use the word permacrisis, but it's undoubtedly true that we have lived through a period of great constitutional change, but I would say turbulence. When I was first due to give this lecture, I'd planned to talk about what was likely to change under a Liz Truss government, because she'd just been elected as leader of the Tory party and therefore prime minister. By the time I came to give it, she had gone and Rishi Sunak had taken over. So there is some pretty remarkable constitutional turbulence in itself to have three prime ministers in one year. And on top of that, there'd been a whole lot of other change, including a new monarch. And there's a whole agenda of things going on under this government and its immediate predecessors around governance and government and public law and the constitution. And I thought it was an interesting time to talk about those things. It's certainly a concern of mine that when events are changing very quickly. By the time we put out a podcast, events will have overtaken what we're talking about, but hopefully this will all still bear some relevance. You might think Rishi Sunak might be Prime Minister for a bit longer. In terms of where we are now then, and permacrisis trending as the word of the year, I should ask where you'd like to begin. I thought, very briefly, just to reflect on the big changes we have already seen, and I've touched on the main ones, changes of government in truth, changes of prime minister, and that was turbulent enough, change uh, of monarch following the death of the Queen and the accession of King Charles III. And that is a very big moment for the country, whatever view you take about the monarchy. It's a big change constitutionally. In some ways, of course it was going to happen, it was predicted, but it was still a big event. In some ways, it was a perfectly orthodox transition. The King took over as monarch immediately on the death of his mother, as was always bound to happen. And you then saw this combination of traditional ceremonial relative formality, constitutional formality in the form of the accession council and so on, and some genuine legal business to ensure that the transition took effect in a kind of legally, constitutionally sound way. But I suspect what we're going to focus on in the course of this chat is the political turbulence and having looked back for a moment, perhaps to look forward to talk about major sort of political constitutional agenda that this government is now taking forward. 
One of the things that I noticed in terms of the political turbulence that we've seen this year is how often things are labelled unconstitutional. I can't remember that word being used quite as many times since the prorogation judgment. And I wondered what you thought of that. How unconstitutional has this political turbulence been? I don't think it has been unconstitutional. I think that is an overused expression, generally used to mean things that are politically unpalatable to the user or just generally disruptive. And of course, it is disruptive to have had two changes of prime minister in a single year. There are all sorts of complaints one could make about the, you might say, undemocratic way in which the Tory party can impose a new prime minister on the country. But they're not unconstitutional. The basic constitutional principles are that the electorate elects individual MPs. We don't elect, although we may, this may influence the way we vote, we don't formally elect parties or governments or prime ministers. The sovereign will appoint as prime minister the person best able to command the competence of the House of Commons. That person will generally be the leader of the largest party or sometimes the coalition of parties. And each party can decide for itself how to choose or get rid of its leader. And that, of course, is what we've seen. So the Tory party has basically made up its own rules as to how it gets rid of and replaces a leader. That person then, however unsatisfactory that process, becomes leader of the largest party. The Tory party still has a big majority in the House of Commons. And it is then perfectly constitutional for the sovereign, now the king, to appoint that person as prime minister. So however disruptive, however unsatisfactory people may think that is, it is actually the constitution doing what it has to do. And it just so happens that it's happened in a very unusual and, as I say, relatively turbulent way. But the changes of prime minister we have seen at the highest level of government, these changes are not unconstitutional. They are just the constitution doing what it has to do at a time of political instability. That's not to say any of that is normal or makes for good governance. Mostly, good governance requires a measure of stability and a measure of democratic buy-in to what the government is doing. And well, we may come on to talk about some of those things, but it remains to be seen how stable the Rishi Sunak government now is. But it's not unconstitutional. I think that's an overused term. Can we talk a bit about just the sheer pace of change? Because since 2019, the UK has had departure from the European Union, the COVID pandemic, like every other country in the world, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a change of monarch and two changes of prime minister. Putting all of that together, how does that impact your view of what's going on in public law? I think it adds, it obviously adds to the uncertainty and the disruption that we're talking about. We've had a Tory government since 2019, which is you know, only three, four years ago, elected on a manifesto, which predated all of the things you talked about. And it obviously looked forward to our departure from the EU. But it certainly didn't foresee any of the other things you've mentioned, the COVID pandemic and so on. But nonetheless, Rishi Sunak has said he regards himself up to a point, at least, as bound by the 2019 manifesto. And we will have to see how far, in truth, he is able to deliver on in that overused expression, the promises in that manifesto. And in terms of some of those manifesto promises, those included typically woolly things like protect our democracy, deliver Brexit. There was also mention of repeal the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and legislate for voter ID. 
Yes. Obviously, my lecture and the topic we're now focusing on was around particularly constitutional change. I mean, there's a whole load of other commitments. Often constitutional change is regarded as the rather boring nuts and bolts tacked on at the end of a manifesto. Given recent events and current events, actually constitutional issues are much more centre stage than they normally would be. So focusing on the constitutional commitments in the manifesto, delivering Brexit, where there's another use of that terrible word, deliver, that was, amongst other things, a massive constitutional change for the UK. Now, that has been achieved, at least in the sense that we've left, but there's obviously a load of unfinished business around the consequences of Brexit, including the status of retained EU law in UK law and the position of the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example. So these remain very live and quite controversial constitutional issues as well as political issues. Some of the other things you've mentioned were achieved. So the Fixed Term Parliaments Act was repealed and we now have legislation for voter ID, for better or worse. So some of those things were done. But as I say, there's an awful lot of the public law constitutional agenda which remains work in progress, including, as I've said, the status of what was EU law in our domestic law, other aspects of the relationship between government, parliament and the courts, including reforms to judicial review, and the promise to update the Human Rights Act, where we now have Mr. Raab's Bill of Rights Bill. So all of these things are still very much live issues for the Sunak government. So in terms of what we can expect from the Sunak government, then perhaps we should take those in turn. One of the things that Mr. Sunak mentioned he was very interested in was the union. And I wondered what you expect from him in terms of his promise to be guardian of the union. All recent Tory prime ministers have said they want to keep the union together. We're talking here mainly, not wholly, but mainly about Scotland, with the, the ongoing, it's called a debate, but sometimes it's more like a battle, with the SNP over, first of all, of course, whether there should be a second referendum, and secondly, an independence vote. Now, Liz Truss had said she was simply going to ignore Nicola Sturgeon, but Mr Sunak has said he wants to take the SNP on and win the argument for the union. So that suggests a slightly more kind of engaged approach to the debate. But we'll have to see. I mean, obviously, as a lawyer, the thing I've focused on is whether there is a legal route through all of this. And we've recently had the judgment of the Supreme Court in the reference by the Lord Advocate relating to a proposed bill of the Scottish Parliament to authorise a second referendum. And in short, the Supreme Court has said that the Scottish Parliament does not have competence to enact such a bill. So the legal position is now relatively well, it's clear that the Scottish Parliament can't enact a bill for a second referendum without the authority of the UK government, and it's pretty clear the UK government is not going to give that. So as things stand, there is no legal route to a second referendum on independence in Scotland and therefore no legal route towards independence. So much for the legal position. The political bait will continue to rage, but at the moment, obviously it's the policy of the government, it's the policy of Rishi Sunak to keep the union together and we'll have to see how far 
He does that by persuasion or by resistance or by engagement. Uh, we'll have to see. One of the things you mentioned was this knotty issue of retained EU law. And as anyone who has studied European law before will know, membership of the European Union involved the UK having enacted a complex network of laws that now become subject to scrutiny following Brexit. I wondered, where do things stand in terms of the legislative agenda and how that's being dealt with in Parliament? Yes, so this is what is called retained EU law. So having left the EU, so there we are, we've left, but in order to secure reasonable legal certainty and continuity, Parliament enacted the EU Withdrawal Act 2018, which, amongst other things, created this concept of retained EU law. And what that meant was all this body of EU law, which, as you say, had accumulated and become part of British law during the period of our membership, that was all retained, was to continue as part of our national law, and by and large was to continue to be interpreted in the same way as previously, until Parliament, after we'd left, chose to change it or replace it. And that was to secure continuity and stability in our legal framework and to avoid massive gaps in the law at the time when we left. So that's the story so far. The government then brought forward the retained EU law revocation and reform bill, which is a pretty radical piece of legislation, which is intended to get rid of all this previous EU law on a very quick timetable. In summary, without getting into a huge amount of detail, in summary, the idea is that all of that law will automatically fall away at the end of 2023, so about a year away from now, unless the government has positively decided to do something with it, either to keep it or to change it or to replace it. And as things stand, that bill is still going through Parliament. I and many others have criticised this way of making law because it involves so much uncertainty things stand, we simply have no way of knowing, even within the next 12 months, how much of this law will change, how much of it will simply disappear, and how much of it will be replaced, and if so, in what way. And this creates massive uncertainty for businesses and everybody else who's affected by EU law, employees, those interested in the environment, consumers of goods which are currently subject to safety laws and so on. Nobody can be certain how much of that will change in the course of the next 12 months, or in what way. In my view, it's a very unsatisfactory way of doing what Parliament is undoubtedly entitled to do, which is change all this law, but to try and do it on this timescale, with this level of uncertainty, I think is very disruptive. But the bill is before Parliament, there's been lots of criticism of it. We'll have to see whether the government listens to voices from certainly from the legal profession, but also more generally from the city, from businesses, from those with an interest in environmental protections, those with an interest in the protections that are currently given by employment law and by interested bodies, I mean, committees in the House of Lords and so on have expressed concerns about this. So we'll have to see whether the government accepts any of those criticisms and brings forward any changes. I wanted to ask you about the Northern Ireland Protocol, because as listeners will know, this has been very unpopular with the UK government since its inception. 
where do things stand now with the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, this is the other bit of, to put it mildly, unfinished business from Brexit. You know, we did a deal. The first bit of the deal was the withdrawal agreement that got us out of the EU. And that included with it the Northern Ireland Protocol, which the government signed up to, the then Boris Johnson government. And it is undoubtedly a complicated and probably was always going to be a controversial piece of legislation that puts Northern Ireland in a unique position these are the both the EU and the rest of the UK, and it, it does produce a form of border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Well, we probably don't have time to go into all the detail of that, but the government signed up to it and has been trying to get out of it pretty much ever since, and is still doing so. Hence, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which gives powers to ministers or one way or another, provides for almost every aspect of the protocol to be overridden or changed. It contains extremely wide powers for ministers to make changes to the protocol. And this, of course, is all unilateral. So this would be the UK deciding unilaterally that it doesn't like the deal it signed up to, and therefore it's going to change it without the agreement of the other party, that's to say the EU. And in my view... Uh, that of many others, this would be a clear breach of the UK's international law obligations under the withdrawal agreement which it signed up to. So this is a serious problem. It's a serious problem politically, legally, constitutionally. The only way out of it would be to negotiate changes to the protocol, which the government is perfectly entitled to try and do. Obviously, negotiation (laughs) involves both sides. I'm just hearing the same noises as everybody else, which suggests that there may be more of an appetite, both from the government and from the EU, to try and negotiate some changes to the protocol, including some amelioration of the burdens that are placed by the need for checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. This has been the subject of lots of discussion. And tough though it may be, I would say that negotiation has to be the way forward. And for the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill in its current form to be passed is really a kind of hostile act by the UK towards the EU. And I think that's likely to make matters worse rather than better. So it's another, I'm afraid, we'll have to see. It's definitely on the agenda. It's not a problem that's going to go away. As I say, I think the way of dealing with it has got to be the hard business of negotiation rather than the UK unilaterally legislating to tear up the very deal that it agreed to. I think no discussion of the 2019 Tory manifesto would be complete without a mention of the Human Rights Act reform. Where do you think things are going? Yeah, the government's preferred direction is embodied in Mr. Raab's Bill of Rights bill, rather curiously named bit of legislation. And yet again, this is before Parliament. So yet again, it's in this, we'll have to wait and see. But successive Tory manifestos for many years have promised a reform of the Human Rights Act. They don't much like it. Um, The 2019 manifesto certainly promised to update the Human Rights Act. The Bill of Rights Bill makes major changes to the Human Rights Act without completely getting rid of it. It keeps the same rights because, as things stand, the intention is that the UK would remain a party to the European Convention on Human Rights. So the government is, whether it would put it this way, but the government is sort of stuck 
with the ECHR unless it actually leaves the convention. We hear that Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, would favour leaving, and that would be another huge constitutional, international policy issue. But for now, the government's policy seems to be that we'll stay in the European Convention, and therefore this bill is intended to change the way in which those rights have effect in UK law. And it's a very complicated bill. It's a bit of a mess, to be honest. The bottom line is that it will make it more difficult for people, citizens in the UK, to enforce their rights in the UK courts. It creates a requirement for permission to bring a claim. It tells the courts to take a more narrow approach to the interpretation of certain rights and so on. So it doesn't create new rights. It makes it more difficult for people to enforce their rights. Um, so it's, I would say, a, a pretty unsatisfactory piece of legislation. The upshot of it is likely to be that more cases go off to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, because if the consequence is that people can't bring their claims in the UK courts or they fail, then, ironically, you might think it means that more cases are likely to go off to Strasbourg. Uh, and I don't know if the government accepts that consequence. Uh, I can't see it welcoming it, but that does seem to me to be the likely outcome. Liz Trust did say she would look again at this bill, but she's gone and Dominic Raab is back as Lord Chancellor. It's very much his bill. So again, we'll have to assume that in some form or another this will pass, but again, it's still with Parliament. So it's in that wait and see category. I'm somewhat comforted by some of the trenchant criticism that the bill has faced by quite prominent commentators. Lord Mance, for example, gave a recent speech and was critical, shall we say, in describing the bill and what it intended to achieve. I mean, virtually every commentator outside government has criticised this bill. Lord Mance has done so. Robert Buckland, who was himself, of course, Lord Chancellor, and was up for some reform of the Human Rights Act, has described the bill as a cure in search of a problem. I see that Edward Garnier, Lord Garnier, has written in The Times, heavily criticising the bill. He's a former Solicitor General, a former Tory Solicitor General at that. So this is not really dividing the parties. It's provoking lots of criticism, certainly from the legal, and as you might expect, the human rights establishment, on all sides. But yeah, I think it's a bit of a mess. And to call it a Bill of Rights, I think is a bit of a fallacy, given that the truth is it will make it more difficult to enforce rights rather than easier, and it doesn't create any new ones. Next, I think it would be worth talking about judicial review and where things stand there. It seems another year, another attempt to alter, amend, narrow avenues of judicial review. And in particular, Lord Folkes' review is what I wanted to ask you about. Where do things stand following his work on this issue? So this is all about the extent to which the actions and decisions of government and other public bodies can be reviewed by the courts under this process called judicial review. And successive governments have at least queried whether the courts are going too far and stepping into what they regard as being the political space and being too willing, therefore, to intervene in decisions that should properly be for government or parliament. And certainly some of the ministers in this government, including, again, Dominic Raab and Suella Braverman, have been pretty critical of some decisions by the courts. 
on the basis, as I said, that they've just gone too far and they should back off. So the government, the then government, set up this review of administrative law under Lord Fawkes. That reported last year. It was a very thorough review into the way that judicial review operates. And it made some relatively minor recommendations for change, which the government did act on. This was mainly about removing the right to review in a certain category of immigration cases, so relatively modest, self-contained change. And the government initially said it was going to go further than the Fawkes Review had recommended, but it didn't do that. It enacted what is now the Judicial Review and Courts Act, and that, as I say, makes only relatively modest changes. So the question is, will the government now go further than that? I don't know. It's relevant, though, that both Suella Braverman and Dominic Raab are back in government, Dominic Raab back in the relevant job as Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor. Again, we'll have to see whether he comes back to this topic to further somehow clip the wings of the judges, get them to back off, restrict the extent to which they intervene in what the government would say are essentially political decisions One of the ways that bills like this have an effect is, whether consciously or unconsciously, a change in the way that judges themselves deal with judicial review applications. Is that something that you've observed in response to this series of bills that aim to, at the very least, tinker with judicial review? Up to a point, I suppose, is the answer to that. I don't think it's just the bills, by the way. I think there's also been a rhetoric, including a number of speeches, from ministers like Suella Braverman, positively having a go at the courts, including the Supreme Court, for particular decisions. Do the courts respond to that? I think it's difficult to say. I mean, we're talking here about independent judges, very senior, clever, robust people who are not going to be bullied into giving the answer the government wants. It's not as crude as that, by any means. More generally, a dialogue between government and the courts is a perfectly good thing. And particularly in this field of public law, where the courts are adjudicating on issues that do have significant policy, political content, the judges will hear what's being said. In the end, they will, talking here, as I say, about higher courts and very senior experienced judges, independent judges, they will reach the judgment that they think is right on the law. But these are matters of judgment by definition. Uh, We have seen a few decisions which, as it were, go the other way, that don't interfere with decisions of the government, controversial decisions of the government, saying that the court should respect the boundaries between legality and the political process, for example, and give particular weight to the democratic accountability of Parliament or the government's accountability to Parliament. So we see that language in some recent cases, and we therefore see some judgments that go the government's way. More specifically, we've seen some observations about the law on standing to bring judicial review. So these are the rules that say what level of interest you have to have in a decision before you can bring a case in the first place. And there have been a couple of decisions where the courts have taken a rather narrow approach to that, which say that it's not enough just to be a pressure group, like the Good Law Project, which obviously is very active in this area. In a couple of cases, the the courts have said 
they found against the good law project, but have also made observations that they can't be expected to have carte blanche to bring any claim. You have to look for somebody who is directly affected in some way by the decision in question. So that, to an extent, is narrowing the scope of judicial review or the types of parties that can bring a claim. And in a sense, that's going the government's way. Whether that amounts to a trend, a bit difficult to say. It will certainly be welcome to the government, some of those decisions. Whether it's a response to the government's agenda, to the bill or the rhetoric, very difficult to say. But it's just very interesting. It's part of this dialogue that I refer to. And it may mean that the government doesn't feel it needs to do any more in this space, that this kind of dialogue with this toing and froing, this development of the common law, which is really what we're seeing, is enough. And therefore, it doesn't need to bring forward any more radical legislation in this space. Finally, and unforgettably, I wanted to move on to standards and ethics, which, as we know, are to be ignored in politics at one's peril, as was belatedly understood in Boris Johnson's downfall. Where do you think things stand on standards and ethics today? Again, this has been a far too big a theme of our politics in recent years. Again, this should be the kind of boring stuff that you only need to use or even know about exceptionally, that there's a problem with standards. But it's been much more centre stage than that. In the end, Boris Johnson was brought down by his failure to play by the rules even though as Prime Minister he was supposed to be their guardian. And we've seen, obviously, some relatively high-profile issues of standards in public life, particularly by parliamentarians. And we've seen also really a failure to do anything about them. Now, the ministerial code, which each Prime Minister issues on appointment, sets all sorts of standards about propriety and ethics and behaviour for ministers. And when he became Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, in his own forward, stressed all of this. He said, we must uphold the very highest standards of propriety. There must be no bullying, no leaking, etc., etc. But by the time he resigned as Prime Minister, that all felt rather hollow. He had failed to take any action on findings that Priti Patel was guilty of bullying, for example. Two independent advisers on the code had resigned and he'd failed to appoint a replacement. And of course, Boris Johnson is now himself subject to investigation by the House of Commons Committee of Privileges for having misled Parliament. Rishi Sunak came in promising to lead the UK with integrity, professionalism and accountability. But it's not really clear to me what he's doing about any of those things. He's not, as far as I know, produced his own version of the Ministerial Code. He hasn't yet appointed an independent advisor, although I think he's promised to do so, but he hasn't done that yet. And then there will be a question as to what powers that person gets, because there's long been a debate that in order for this system of standards to work, you need a genuinely independent advisor and indeed enforcer. We'll have to see. I mean, there has been a number of calls for any such advisor to be given greater powers so that you have somebody that's genuinely independent and can enforce the code properly and commence their own investigations and so on. So that's one question, whether he, Mr Sunak, accepts those recommendations and appoints a new advisor or enforcer with greater powers, that would be a sign 
that he's taking standards and ethics more seriously. But so far, I think the jury is out on how seriously he's going to take this question of standards. There's still a bit of a row about his decision to reappoint Suella Braverman as Home Secretary only days after she had resigned for having failed to meet the highest standards in her own words. So that certainly cast a question mark over how seriously he was going to take this question of standards. But certainly the appointment of a fully empowered new advisor would help. Closely related to this concern about the need to maintain high ethical standards is the the issue of duty of candour, which we will be familiar with certainly as lawyers. But I wanted to ask you about your reaction to a recent judgment in a case called HM and the Secretary of State for the Home Department, which was about the seizure and retention of mobile phones belonging to migrants arriving from across the channel. But in a separate judgment was really about the extent to which lawyers acting on behalf of the Home Department had not been properly briefed about the way in which the policy worked, which then meant that the High Court was not given information to which it considered itself entitled to. And I just wonder what you thought about that in light of this concern that some might have about a a culture of failing standards and poor ethics. I think it's probably in a different category. It's obviously a very bad case for the government and the Home Office. The duty of candour that you mentioned is about the duty on particularly public bodies, but all parties to these kinds of cases, judicial review cases, the duty to be candid and open with the court, provide all the relevant material, tell a true and honest story and so on. And that didn't happen in this case. The court was definitely misled about the existence of this policy to seize phones. And that is a serious problem, no doubt about it. And it will have been very painful for my former colleagues, government lawyers and so on, who are acting in the case, because they have their professional duties to the court. And the idea that they're put in a position where they're not being completely honest with the court is a problem. You know, one likes to think this is more cock-up than anything else. Certainly the lawyers involved and the civil servants involved will, I'm sure, not have been deliberately misleading the court. And that is nowhere accepted. So this is really about competence in the management of litigation in a kind of culture within the Home Office, maybe among decision makers in the Home Office, about how seriously they take this kind of litigation and this duty. And I'm sure this decision that you mentioned will have sent shockwaves rightly through the relevant bits of government and people will be learning their lessons. But I really can't believe that there's anything kind of deliberate about it. So as I say, I think it's in a slightly different category from some of the other issues we've been talking about, where the government actually has an agenda, for example, try and restrict the court's involvement in certain types of issues. This will not be that. This, I think, is more likely to be cock up. All in all, and to conclude this episode, do you think it is fair to say that political instability continues such that we can describe what we are seeing at the moment as a state of permacrisis. It may be that we have a bit of stability in the sense that Rishi Sunak will be given a bit longer to run his government. Let's assume he's not going to go 
before the next general election. So he may have a bit of space to inject some stability politically. Most of the issues I've been talking about, I keep saying, you know, we'll have to wait and see, the jury is out. So all of those things are live. The fate of the Human Rights Act, the fate of the Northern Ireland Protocol, what happens on retained EU law, is Sunak going to appoint an ethics advisor? All of those things are unsettled. So, you know, whether it's permacrisis or not, there's still a lot of unfinished business. There's still a lot of uncertainty. We've focused, because this is my area of interest, on public law and the constitution. There's plenty of other challenges facing this government. We've got a winter of strikes upon us, issues with fuel prices and so on. So whether it's permacrisis, I say I didn't use that word, turbulence, instability, uncertainty are still with us. And in the area I've been talked about, certainly there's still a lot of unfinished business where we'll have to wait and see. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the podcast. We will, as we always do, include a link to the various judgments mentioned today. Off the top of my head, that includes the Supreme Court judgment on the Scottish independence referendum and HM and the state for the Home Department. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for that very lucid description of every way in which political stability is being tested at the moment in the UK. Thank you very much for inviting me and for the conversation. LawPod UK is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon and produced by One Crown Office Row.